Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson, and this is a bonus episode in the Tomes of Magic series. Terry Robinson and I discussed Dragons of the East for Revised Edition, and I had so many notes, I had to cut about half of them. That material appears in this episode. Because this is a more relaxed episode, I'll put in a few personal anecdotes. I'll try not to overdo it. If that's something you don't appreciate or you have any other feedback you'd like me to hear, email us at magethepodcast at gmail.com or visit the Discord we've set up for Mage the Podcast. There you'll find a channel called Adam's Questions. You can share your thoughts with me there or start a conversation. Dragons of the East is a book that gets my interest because, as I mentioned in the episode with Terry, Asia has been a big part of my life. Most of my friends were Chinese when I was growing up in California. I spent time in the large Chinese communities in San Francisco and Los Angeles. I lived in Tokyo for three months when I was 17 with an elderly Japanese host and had to learn Japanese daily customs quickly. I visited Japan again many times for long stays. My Japanese was decent years ago, but I'm getting rusty now. I've spent time studying Japanese history and Buddhist lore. I've spent four months in mainland China and a month in South Korea. I've had three long stays in Thailand because my brother lived there for years. He's fluent in Thai and married a Thai woman who's ethnically Cambodian and grew up near the border with Cambodia. She was my guide when I visited that country. I've been to Nepal, but I've spent a lot more time in India because my wife is from there. She's from the Brahmin caste, and her grandparents on her mother's side conducted Hindu rituals at temples before they retired. They also instructed young Brahmins in Hinduism. I hope I don't sound pretentious. I know I'm no expert on Asia, but when Mage has a book on the subject, I get excited. I'd like to start at the beginning. Chapter 1 was real-world history for nations and regions. I was disappointed both with how much was left out and how briefly information was presented. I've read about the eras and dynasties of China, but I got confused in China's section. For Japan, on page 18, it says Ninja killed Oda Nobunaga in 1582, but in chapter 3, it states that Ninja only existed in fiction. Uh, More on that in a bit. It says Toyotomi Hideyoshi was behind the plot, but I'd like to see some proof for that. My studies have Akechi Mitsuhide as the man behind the plot. Hideyoshi took advantage of the situation afterward, but I would hardly blame him for that. Korea's section doesn't make clear how much of their history they were occupied and controlled by China, although the editing problem appears to have canceled out some text, so who can say how it's supposed to read? Chapter 2 starts out making clear players don't have to play mages that adhere to the standard beliefs and practices of real-world religions. Mage factions and individuals can hold to a more extreme or altered version of a religion or philosophy. This can make for interesting characters, and we should keep in mind mages rarely follow the rules. I like when players are encouraged to play with ideas and make something of their own. On Hinduism, I like how it informs the reader that the idea of Brahma the creator, Vishnu the preserver, and Shiva the destroyer, which I remember from textbooks when I was in school, is not as clean-cut as some academics claim. Hinduism is so rich and so varied that I would encourage mage fans to do their own research rather than rely on the short section in this book. Many Westerners don't know that devotion to certain Hindu gods varies with regions. There's no mention of the large importance that individual gurus can gain, even being worshipped. In the world of darkness, I can see a mage taking advantage of this, but it's a topic that you have to consider before pursuing. Some Indians would be fine with that in their game, while some might take offense. I should point out that this is a topic people disagree on in India. Some are upset over the gurus and call them con artists, while others are really devoted to them. 
Buddhism in Southeast Asia has Hindu influences that I think are fascinating. From my light reading, it looks like Hinduism had great influence in the region long ago, but more recently, China and Buddhism held influence. I visited an old Buddhist temple in rural Thailand, not far from the Cambodian border. My wife started pointing and naming the Hindu gods and goddesses depicted in stone carvings. She explained how the temple layout was designed for specific Hindu rituals and pointed to architectural details that matched Hindu temples in India. My sister-in-law shouted, No! This is a Buddhist temple! You are wrong! When she stomped off, I told my wife to stop it. Religion can be a touchy subject. There's a sidebar at the end of chapter 2 on syncretism that I wasn't happy with. It would have been better if it had mentioned the fact that some forms of syncretism exist at the national level and are quite old, while Japan has the new religions phenomenon. Charismatic individuals for years have taken elements of culture and different religions to create their own new religion, and these attract believers in numbers that are not often seen in the rest of Asia. In the world of darkness, a Japanese mage could do much with this. Some sensitivity is advised, but I don't think this should be off-limits for every gaming table. For more on this, look for Ian Reader books like Religion in Contemporary Japan and Japanese Religions Past and Present. The section on Shintoism has the sun god listed as Amaterasu. I'm used to seeing Amaterasu, sometimes pronounced Amaterasu. For chapter 3, I was disappointed to see werewolf cosmology, specifically the triad of weaver, wild, worm, come up again in a mage book. Here it seems to arrive via matter written for Kindred of the East, but again and again the white wolf authors show their strong love of the werewolf cosmology. Here it's tiger representing yang for wild, dragon representing yin for worm, phoenix representing balance or form for weaver. I think the triad can play a role in Mage, but I think it works better as a minor idea among many. This also reminded me of Tiger, Dragon, Phoenix from the first Akashic Brother tradition book where it wasn't handled well. I work more with Turtle, Tiger, Phoenix, Dragon in my chronicles. Each is associated with a cardinal direction on the compass. I wouldn't tie Yin and Yang to these. Perhaps Turtle is stasis, Tiger is balance, Phoenix is entropy, Dragon is dynamism. Rearrange those as you like. On mystic associations, World of Darkness material has a dragon associated with yin, but Chinese culture associates dragons much more with yang. Also, we see mention of yang being spoken of as the Scarlet Queen. Yang is inherently male, while yin is inherently female. This struck me as being, frankly, culturally insensitive. Some innovation makes things interesting, but this kind of innovation makes it look like someone wants to fix traditional Chinese culture. Shaolin Temple looms large in Chinese culture, so I can understand why the authors wanted to open it up to all supernatural groups. In my chronicles, I keep Shaolin firmly in Akashic hands. To me, it seems to fit so well with the concepts behind the Akashic Brotherhood. Also, mixing where creatures, Kuejin, mages, and Xi'an together should be done carefully, and I don't get the sense that that was considered here. We revisit the Wulung for revised edition in this chapter. An overview is given for players who only have revised edition, and the group is updated for events in the metaplot, such as the Avatar Storm. The rotes given here give information for a storyteller to link rituals to them, and I think this works so well for Wulung practices. Kudos to the authors. My issue with the Wulung is their scope. This group was introduced in the Book of Crafts. They were conceived as a smaller mage faction only in China. They proved popular and grew in importance in the world of mage. I think they're great, but I don't see just Chinese culture written on them. I see a larger trend in Asian mysticism. 
court rituals. Centuries ago, many people thought that more formal rituals made for stronger magic. More people, nicer outfits, longer ritual time, and expensive components. That meant only royalty and nobility could conduct these rituals. A tradition, if you'll forgive the term, of mages would grow up attached to the highest levels of Asian society. These mages were paid well by rulers and given the supplies they needed. They tried to keep the rulers happy, but also influence them. In modern times, most royalty and nobility are gone, but commoners can afford components and outfits that were impossible for them 200 years ago. They also get days off they didn't get in past centuries. My point is, the faction of court mages could operate without being dependent on the ruling class in modern times. I see the Wulung as the Chinese part of this larger group. I may call them the celestial ministers, but would have mages in every Asian nation. This might conflict with a scion sighing of the elemental dragons, but I think a storyteller can resolve this without too much work. The Wukang get the same overview and update as the Wulung. The Wukang are depicted here as being quite influential in China's history. I think they work better as a small group. This book makes it clear that all Chinese shamans became the Wukang. It mentions that some members of the Wukang have recently started training new mages in the ways of original untainted shamanism. In my chronicles, there are many shamans that never joined the Wukang. The Wukang are also depicted here as being more sinister and not only having access to more infernal powers, but more willingness to use them. I like this as it makes sense that a group influenced by infernal powers for centuries would develop along these lines. The rotes are great, giving peasant magic flavor. They also have rotes that untainted shamans would use. The authors deserve much appreciation here. Chapter 4 gives us secret societies of Asia. Go Kamisorigama are mages who use high-tech equipment and cybernetic implants along with a ninja image. This group was interesting but suffered from lack of direction. Beyond making money, I couldn't see any goals or enemies. Their philosophies were no more than make money and stick with what works. This group was mentioned in the Mage 20 core book, but not much is there. It says they hate the technocracy, but not why. As I was reading, I was thinking it would be cooler if they were descended from actual ninjas, but the sidebar on page 79 states ninjas were only fiction in the real world, and the world of darkness is the same. I just disagree with this completely. I read the same material they repeat in the sidebar from some Western scholars. The problem is the scholars who teach this material don't refute the historical evidence for real ninjas and real ninja clans. They just make their statements and then talk at length on their explanations of desperate farmers and traditional puppeteers' outfits. They depend on their readers never seeing the evidence in favor of ninjas. I've read the proof, and although this isn't a history podcast, I'm going to present a few tidbits. Momochi Tanba, leader of the Iga ninja clan, led a guerrilla campaign against Oda Nobukatsu, second son of Oda Nobunaga, starting in 1579. In the next year, the Iga made a nighttime raid against Nobukatsu's fortress and routed the force of 3,000 troops led by a highly experienced field marshal. Oda Nobunaga was furious at his son's humiliation. In 1581, Nobunaga sent 44,000 troops into the region and tore it up. There's Mochizuka Chiyojo of the Koga clan. When her husband Moritoki died in battle in 1561, she was taken into the service of feudal lord Takeda Shingen and founded the Aruki Miko, or Walking Maidens. This all-female ninja group were trained in religion, martial arts, and sexuality. They traveled everywhere gathering information for Takeda Shingen. 
The idea of ninja working as gardeners is an image firmly planted in Japanese popular culture. This is also based on fact. Shogun Tokugawa Yoshimune reigned from 1716 to 1745. He employed the ninja of Ki province and created a group called the Oniwaban, who were groundskeepers when not performing missions. In 1720, they dressed as beggars and shadowed the criminal Sazanami Dembe and took him out when the time was right. If you'd like some ninja flavor to inspire your mage games, check out Ninja Attack by Hiroko Yoda and Matt Alt. This compact little book is easy to read and packed with information. Also, True Path of the Ninja by Tuttle Publishing. This is a translation of the Shoninki, a 17th century ninja training manual. I hope the listeners will forgive my rant on ninjas when Terry's not around. I lack supervision. The Tok Fan of Cambodia make a great faction of villains for mage. I'd like to use them in my games. I'd make them either a part of the larger faction of court mages in which I place the Wulong, or I'd give them a link in the past to the Wulong. This gives them reasons to interact and could be a skeleton in the closet for the Wulong to deny. The Tengu of Japanese legends are said to be East Asian Koraks, that is, were-ravens, in this book. I see too many differences between the Koraks and the traditional accounts of Tengu. I make them a separate type of supernatural being. This isn't hard, using some basic stats and gifts from mage and werewolf books. They are depicted in several legends as being anti-Buddhism. I handle Tengu like this. The Tengu are upset that the ancient relationship between humans and spirits is mostly gone. The humans suffered at the hands of supernatural beings long ago, but they also gained boons at times, and the Tengu think humans should accept this. When they kidnap and train humans, it is to reestablish the old ways. Religions that teach abstract ideas, like Buddhism's enlightenment or Christianity's holiness, uh, they pull humans away from ancient ways. The Tengu resist mages like the Celestial Chorus, the Akashic Brotherhood, and Technocracy. However, the Tengu are too weakened in modern times to pick many fights. Chapter 5 is all about the elemental dragons, the mages of East Asia who embraced reason and joined the technocracy while keeping their old affiliations alive and secret. As I mentioned in the episode with Terry, the book states the elemental dragons have had such difficulty in recent years maintaining the mental screens of the Miao Guan that their deception against the technocracy has been compromised. However, most of Chapter 5 speaks of deceiving the Western technocracy. Storytellers have to interpret this, so I'll give my take on the situation. I liked the idea presented in previous mage books of the Asian and Western supporters of reason finding common cause and combining. This unity was assumed to be behind their success against the Council of Nine Mystic Traditions and others. But it's reasonable to assume the sleeper masses of Asia, with their different beliefs, would create a consensus that differs from the one in the West. Also, the five elemental dragons are interesting, and I don't want to see them lost. As a storyteller, I would tone down the deception. The elemental dragons would declare their five groups to be informal societies within the technocratic union. They have a formal treaty declaring senior members of theirs are recognized as leaders within one of the five conventions with the ability to appoint their own successors. Asian technocrats who aren't senior leaders are always members of one convention but change membership when needed to suit training goals and assignments. The Asian senior leaders make it clear they have certain decision-making powers in East Asian nations that will not be countermanded by outsiders. The elemental dragons reduce the number of Western technocrats in East Asia, but there are still a good number of them. 
I would say there is a simmering disagreement between Western and Asian leaders in the technocracy over the Asian technocrats' continued use of traditional mystic techniques like Taoist alchemy, yin-yang beliefs, etc. Western leaders let it go largely because they believe younger Asian technocrats will in time abandon the beliefs on their own. This adjustment of mine allows me to avoid dealing with a deception that I believe stretches plausibility. For one, the mental powers of the Miao Guan seem just too powerful in this book. Also, the New World Order and the Syndicate are not going to agree to keep their hands off large nations with large economies completely. They'll demand data and mental probing of underlings, and when they see inconsistencies or resistance, they won't let it go. The New World Order and Syndicate are good at what they do, and not to be taken lightly by anyone. I didn't agree with pinning elemental dragon groups to specific nations and cultures. I think it would have been better to render their names in English and let them operate in China, Japan, Taiwan, and the Korean Peninsula equally. After reading Chapter 5, I was confused about how much the dragons operate in their own territory and how much they move around East Asia. I would hate to think of Iteration X as German and the progenitors as French, for example. I think it was a mistake to make no mention of how the Avatar Storm has affected the elemental dragons. Did they have horizon realms before the storm? Are they upset about not being able to access them, or did they never go in for that sort of thing? What are their thoughts on the Umbra and traveling there? I would expect it to be different from the Western technocracy's belief that the Umbra equates to outer space and alternate dimensions. One disappointment is this book's negation of previous material on the Chinese artificers. In second edition, there was talk of Iteration X finding a group in China called the Artificers that were so much like them that getting together was only natural. This made the modern Iteration X a truly international group having both Western and Chinese influences. And from what I know of Chinese culture, it fit. There are elements of formality and love of numbering things and an emphasis on order that made it all seem natural. So I was sad to see the Chinese Iteration Xers erased by this book. Chapter 5 states that Sian Tsaiang moved many of their members to the Korean Peninsula in the 1940s. I have a hard time believing this would be possible. For many years, the Korean people have not thought well of the Japanese. They did not forget Hideyoshi Toyotomi's military invasions in the 16th century, and they certainly didn't forget the events of World War II. A group of Japanese people appearing there in the 1940s and attempting to live would not be overlooked. They would be, let's say, encouraged to leave. Saying that the royalty of the Korean and Japanese people would feel solidarity doesn't work for me either. Each group was trying to replace the other. Constant mentions made it clear that geomancy is very important to the elemental dragons, and this fit very well for me. The Asian technocrats are the people in a position to pursue geomancy. Being involved with governments and large corporations, they have the authority and the means to use water management, city planning, forest management, and other efforts to pursue their beliefs properly. In recent decades, large land reclamation efforts have been done in East Asia. Massive public works create artificial islands near cities, and then every square inch is carefully utilized. Elemental dragons don't want sleepers doing this improperly and disturbing the flow of qi through the land. In addition, these projects can realign qi flows to gain advantages over the mystic factions. My compliments to the authors for seeing this. Before covering chapter 6, which is essentially a grab bag of wonders and magical places, I wanted to discuss a few things that involve the book as a whole. First off, while I felt that four factions of mages interacting with each other through the ages of Asia's past was not enough, 
I also see the problem of ascribing a faction of majors to every religious movement, philosophy, ethnic group, etc. What I would have liked to see was a larger group roughly analogous to the verbena of East and Southeast Asia. This would be majors not aligned with aspects of the ruling classes, but instead the peasants. Something like shamans, but not as the dream speakers exemplify. More like folk beliefs linked to methods that don't go back to the earliest times. Also, I would really like to see a group in line with the Vajrayana area of Buddhism mentioned briefly in chapter 2. Inspiration for this can be found in Shingon Buddhism in Japan and Tibetan Buddhism. Not as abstract as the Akashic Brotherhood, more mystical and influenced by ideas coming out of the Indian subcontinent. They would study elaborate diagrams depicting numerous gods, spirits, and other beings, and try to derive wisdom about the nature of the tapestry and magic. This group might maintain relations with Indian mages. Another general topic I wanted to mention was what I consider the sleeper hit of Dragons of the East, mage views on chi. Chi control and harvesting are mentioned constantly throughout the book. If I understood the authors correctly, East and Southeast Asian mages see chi as an indicator of a larger system. I'm going out on a limb here, but as a mage fan, I'll take the risk of looking foolish. Mages, including the elemental dragons, see the tapestry, that is the universe we live in, including magical forces, as vast and complex. Mages are small players on this great stage and can only perceive things imperfectly. Chi, that is quintessence, has a relation to the tapestry like an iceberg. The part of the iceberg we see above the waterline is less than half of the iceberg, but it's all we can see. So sailors study it as best they can and try to make guesses about the entire iceberg to avoid hitting it. So it is with chi. Mages pay attention to where chi is found, its resonance, and then study other indicators they can perceive. The elemental dragons especially take their data on chi and then study the land and the people. How are the rivers flowing? Any floods? Are the forests healthy? The animals dying out or increasing too much? Are the people healthy? How are those crime rates? Any populated areas growing or shrinking? All the information is considered, and guesses are made about the tapestry. The mages who truly understand the tapestry are the ones equipped to maintain order, rule well, see what the future holds, and gain power over their rivals. Either that or I'm having a bout of quiet myself and screwed this up completely. Feel free to let me know how wrong I am. Chinese legends have many stories about the immortals. Often they are placed in the mountains, an inherently magical place in past ages. I can see a lot of reason why East Asians with knowledge of the past would mistake mages for immortals. It seems natural to have a mage faction of some sort that associates itself with these legends. They lived long or endless lives. They were experts at alchemy, creating pills and potions of all varieties. They could travel quickly with their magic and perceive signs in nature that eluded normal people. Taoist lore is a great place to look for these legends to spice up your mage chronicles. An area I'd like to play with today is the ikiryo, or living ghost, from Japanese legends. This is the idea if a person is persecuted severely enough, their spirit might leave their body at night and torture the object of their wrath. To bring this into the world of mage, I'd say there's a group of people with the ability to send their spirits out of their bodies, and when they do, they can exercise supernatural powers. I don't want to make them too powerful, so let's say they can make people sick, spy, talk to spirits and umbrood, steal objects that aren't too heavy, 
and perhaps manipulate others' dreams. Give them Arcanoi from Wraithy Oblivion or appropriate spirit gifts from Mage Books. Remember, Axis Mundi has extra gifts and it counts as a Mage Books. If they aren't powerful, how do they challenge your players? Make them subtle. Their ability isn't the same as astral projection, so they can't be seen that way. Mages must learn a special rote that is pretty obscure if they want to see these antagonists in action. Mind 2, Spirit 1, add Prime 1 if you like, or toss them a wonder. Now that I've got some rules suggestions, look, let's make this group interesting. We could call them Spirit Walkers or Emerald Seers. The Peony Court would be a more subtle name. Uh, peonies are a flower that grows in both China and Japan. If they claim descent from Heian nobility, they may work to restore the Japanese emperor to power. Perhaps they want to gain power over and unite sorcerer sects of East Asia. Perhaps they fear drifting outside their bodies while they sleep, so they have careful rituals to protect themselves. If you use the Dream Lords of the Maya from early mage books, you could have a connection between the two groups. Now you have a new group of antagonists to surprise your players that fit into East Asian lore. If you're thinking of using them in one of your games, why not email us at magethepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know you're listening and you like the ideas. In Chapter 6, A Thousand Things of Magic, I really enjoyed the material presented. I thought about what wonders I might want to add. An obvious choice is the Monkey King's Staff. The Monkey King is a character from the Journey to the West. His name is Sun Wukong in Chinese and Son Goku in Japanese. Yes, that is the name of the main character in Dragon Ball Z. No, that isn't a coincidence. It is difficult to overstate the popularity of this character in East Asian cultures. He shows up everywhere, and copycats show up everywhere else. He had an iron staff that could change its length, girth, and weight. He would shrink it to the size of a sewing needle and tuck it behind his ear for storage. I can't imagine East Asian mages not wanting to recreate that staff. It would involve matter effects and be a vulgar wonder. Storytellers would need to work with players to make sure it doesn't get too powerful. A six-inch bar that fits in a pocket and becomes a staff that can propel a mage up to a second or third story balcony should be reasonable. There's a tradition in Japan for sword makers to make oversized swords for Shinto shrines for ceremonial purposes. Picture a katana that is so long and so heavy, no one can use it. Mages involved with Shinto could make these as wonders that, when activated properly, are light enough to wield. In keeping with the theme, I would say these aren't meant for combat with anything that has a physical body. They could be used to battle unembodied spirits, ward an area, open a portal to the Umbra, or purify an area. The Nihongi, or Nihon Shoki, is a book from Japan chronicling ancient history. It mentions the seven-branched sword. For many years, people thought it was just a legend. A sword with one handle and seven blades? That's ridiculous. However, in 1945, it was discovered at the Isonokami Shrine. It's a straight-bladed, double-edged sword that is shaped in a way that each edge has three tiny blades that hook off the main blade. I wouldn't be surprised at all if mages in 1945 soon swapped it for a well-made replica, or if the one discovered was a fake to throw people off the scent. The real one would be a potent wonder that mage factions would fight to own. It would no doubt give a faction an advantage when dealing with Kuei Jin and other supernatural groups. 
Because of its royal lineage, I wouldn't give it combat abilities. I would make it enable geomancy efforts to redirect quintessence. I would also give hefty bonuses to dealing with Umbrood and leading groups of people. The section A Thousand Places of Power was a bit of a letdown with so few places. One place I definitely put there is Fushimi Inari Taisha, a Shinto shrine complex in Kyoto, Japan. The complex centers around Inari, the god who has foxes for messengers. Inari is traditionally associated with fertility, rice farming, but also merchants. Those who donate money get a tori, a red spirit gate, erected. Over the years, businesses have funded so many spirit gates that they form red tunnels through the forest behind the main shrine. You start in a modern Japanese city, and when you first emerge from a tunnel, it's hard not to imagine you've been transported to a magical world or hundreds of years in the past. In 2006, I spent a day there, and I'll never forget the experience. For the world of darkness, the first impulse is to make it a stronghold for the kitsune, the werefoxes. And this works fine, but because of the inability to see the forest you're walking through as you pass through the red tunnels, this place would work very well for mages. It would be child's play to use low-level sphere effects to hide all kinds of things in that forest. A mage chantry would work remarkably well there, despite the many sleepers who visit. Another spot worth mentioning is Aokigahara Forest, also called the Sea of Trees near Mount Fuji in Japan. A 9th century eruption deposited volcanic material over a wide area that today is a vast, dense forest. Although scientists dispute it, many people report their compasses failing in the roughly 7,500-acre forest. The trees grow in such profusion that little sunlight gets through and dense shrubbery muffles sound. Many people get lost, and many go there to commit suicide. Seriously, there are many signs posted by local authorities urging people to rethink ending their lives and to call the hotline. The forest is the subject of countless hushed discussions in Japan. What is really happening there? In the episode with Terry, I offered adventure ideas that focus on the elemental dragons. Here are some for the other mages of East Asia. Number one, in Henan Province, China, in the mountains southwest of Zhengzhou City, Wushan Hermits, the Janani sect of the Akashic Brotherhood, have walked the mountain paths for millennia. Lately, several Janani disciples have disappeared. In astral form, a Wushan appears to the players, begging for help. He speaks of the Tengu's mages attacking them. A little research reveals the Chinta, the mages of Asia, are aware of Tengu, the, of the Grey Clouds Temple, training mortals to be goblin slayers, monster slayers with martial arts skills as well as minor magic ability. There are no records of the Grey Clouds training or hiring mages. Once in the mountains of Henan province, the players find a terrified Wushan disciple claiming mages calling themselves the Grey Cloud Fists have sworn to purge the mountains of all Janani for daring to pollute the Glen of the Golden Pheasant, a legendary place that no Chinta can locate. Never fond of Akashic mages, the Tengu haven't provoked hostilities for centuries. Is this new threat really from them? Why are Janani leaders unwilling to speak of their activities in the mountains? As players get to the bottom of the mystery, their outdoor skills will be sorely tested. Number two, Kyoto, Japan, has long been a gathering place of Japan's supernatural factions. Although not numerous, mages of different factions have maintained an uneasy peace for many years. That peace is being strained to the breaking point by a series of vendettas being fought in the forested area near Yamashina Ward. None can say why mages of several factions are stirring to hatred and demanding duels, 
but it is whispered the foxes may know. Fushimi Inari Taisha, a Shinto shrine complex just south of the recent nighttime duels, is said to be a stronghold of the kitsune, the werefoxes. When the players investigate, they find a mysterious woman working a ritual during a mage duel who flees in the direction of the ancient shrine. A search of the forest within the shrine's precincts reveals possessions of mages who have disappeared after recent duels. What are the kitsune doing with the young mages they've taken? Idle curiosity, or is something big brewing? Clever players may open relations between the elusive werefoxes and their own faction. Number three, a sect of mages connected with the Wulung operated in Japan during the turbulent 16th century. Some say they stood behind Oda Nobunaga's conquests but lost their puppet to treachery before they could complete their plan. The ruins of Azuchi by Lake Biwa, one of Nobunaga's castles, revealed no secrets. Now, after disruption and chi flows caused by the elemental dragons, a small node has appeared by Oki Island at the southern end of the lake. The Vajrapani sect of the Akashic Brotherhood, the Wulung, and the Saiyan Saiyang of the elemental dragons scrambled to be the first to discover any clues leading to the true seven-branch sword. The town near the shore is a safe house for Strike Force Zero, as well as the research base of a group of Arcanum scholars. The frantic search for the fabled sword will have to be conducted very quietly and very carefully. I wanted to round out this episode with some book recommendations. I've seen ideas for chronicles in different historical settings in mage books. Other than Sorcerer's Crusade, the historical setting that most grabs my interest is Japan in the 1500s. Local lords were constantly marching to war. The imperial court was looking for their chance to regain prominence. Every religious group was active, and ninjas were on the prowl. Taiko is a historical nava by Eiji Yoshikawa that covers this period well. It not only makes the main events clear, but gives many details on daily life during the period. Yokai is a Japanese word to describe many of the creatures from legend as well as modern urban myths. I was interested to see how fears and concepts were personified to make these creatures, and that's why I'd consider yokai when making umbrud from the high umbra that appear on Earth. Yokai Attack by Hiroko Yoda and Matt Alt is a very accessible and compact book that covers the topic well. For inspiration, I often like to look at the oldest legends accessible. The Kojiki from Japan and the classic of mountains and seas from China fit the bill. These were written so long ago that people didn't separate the fantastic from the mundane. Barbarians attacked a border village? Write it down. Shipping lanes are closed down because a dragon on the side of a mountain is throwing fireballs? Better write it down. Donald Philippi's translation of the Kojiki has a meaty glossary to help you with unfamiliar names, while Anne Birrell's translation of Classic of Mountains and Seas is affordable and appears well-researched. The last book is The Journey to the West. This four-volume epic is like drinking from a fire hose, but what a rush! If you want a crash course on traditional Chinese culture and supernatural elements, this is it. Don't be put off by the length. The first volume by itself is all most people need to get their bearings for mage stories with Chinese elements. Anthony C. Yu's translation includes the poems and has notes in the back to explain the many references to older Chinese legends, gods, etc. If you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review of Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in their searches. 
You can follow us on Twitter at MageThePodcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see the complete show notes. This episode is thanks to executive producers John Magnuson, Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Michael Parker, Christopher Phillips, Ilara J. Sunsern, Bryce Perry, Brendan Morrill, Andrew Katz, Jenna F., Andrew Edelstein, Chris Zack, Anders, and Justin. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this bonus episode. Until next time, truth until paradox, baby.